Well, good morning. Happy MJ year. Um, Sammy and I are so glad to, to finally be members here at Grace. We started coming here in the summer. Uh, I started working here at the church in October. We became members a few weeks ago, and then last week on Christmas morning, um, we got to have our baby girls, Myla and Layton, 15 months, um, twin girls, baptized here. So that was very special. Um, we feel incredibly grateful for you guys and the welcome that we've received here. We have just been so impressed with this church, um, really impressed with this church, M mainly the beams in here, the physical appearance of it, but you guys, you guys have been all right as well. Uh, many of you have had us over for, for dinner, uh, invited us into your homes, fed us, given us drinks. <clears throat> many of you haven't yet. Uh, <laughs> thank you, uh, and, and I'm just, I'm, I'm really honored. I, I feel like <clears throat> the Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the Romans, and he said that he was eager to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. I, I feel like that this morning. Uh, he, he wrote that to Christians. He didn't write that to non-believers. Um, the gospel is for us, the believers, and the non-believers. So maybe I can impart something fruitful to you guys this morning as you guys have shared good things with my wife and I. If you have been with us, you know that we've been making our way through the gospel of John. Uh, but this morning, we will take a detour, kind of like a flashback, to delve into a psalm. Uh, Boomer will continue in the Gospel of John uh, next Sunday morning. Uh, the Apostle John quotes the psalms seven times in his Gospel, and uh, the psalms is the most quoted New Testament, uh, most quoted in the New Testament, it's the most quoted Old Testament book. Um, on the road to Emmaus, you might recall in Jesus' discourse with a couple of his followers, uh, he explained to them that he must fulfill all that was written of him in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the things written of him in all scripture. But later at the end of Mark, Jesus tells his followers specifically, uh, I should say Luke, this is Luke. Uh, at the end of Luke, Jesus tells his followers again, that he also had to fulfill what was written of him in the Psalms, he specifies. So as we read the Psalms, we, we kind of read the Psalms with one eye on, on ourselves, uh, but also one eye upon how Christ fulfills the Psalms. Uh, the, the famous uh, Robert Murray McShane, uh, who pastored in the early 1800s, who passed away at the young, ripe age of 29 years old, <clears throat> he said this, he said, to, to, uh, to abstain from the temptation to uh, morbidly introspect upon our own lives and hearts, he said this, he said, we should take one look at ourselves and 10 looks at Christ. And I think the Psalms is the way we do that very well. Um, it is hard to read the Psalms and not look 10 times at Christ and, and once at ourselves. And, and maybe if, if, if we're tempted to divorce the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, we have this in, in Romans 15 verse four, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. This is no doubt a reference to the Old Testament that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So the Old Testament is relevant for the believer today. Um, uh, again, I, I just wanna preview the Psalms before we get into Psalm 88, and I, I wanna uh, share a brief story about my grandmother that I think highlights the essence of the Psalms as opposed to the rest of scripture, that it is unique. Um, several years ago, I drove my grandmother, my beautiful grandmother Marie, back to her home in Salina, Kansas. As we drove through the beautiful green Flint Hills, I began to ask my 97-year-old, Great Depression surviving, Dust Bowl surviving, Christ-loving grandmother, a few questions about her faith. Uh, if I'm not careful, I could probably write a whole sermon about my grandmother. It could be a Grandmother Marie-centered sermon, but I won't do that. 
I specifically asked her to share with me some scriptures that she had memorized. And so she began to ponder all the verses and passages that she had memorized, still really sharp at 97. And, and she had quoted to me so many passages before, Philippians uh, 1.6, she had quoted various passages from Matthew, Romans, Ephesians. But, but this morning, as, as we journeyed through the Flint Hills, she began to repeat Psalm 91, which she learned as a young child when she dealt with sickness in her home in La Crosse. And uh, she was taught that by her mother. And, and she began to repeat the entire Psalm, and, and then she began to repeat other ones. Um, and, and as I listened to that, I, I don't know if it occurred to me right away, but as I reflected upon that, th- there was something different as she repeated the Psalms out loud. And I think this is the difference. Um, she was singing. That's what it was, right? Th- these songs were in her heart. It is easy for us when we are uh, going about our life, a, a certain melody hits us or a certain place or a certain person, and we think of common radio songs all the time. Many of us are probably very good at that. Uh, my, my grandmother, uh, when she was hit with the waves of this world, she had the Psalms in her heart. Uh, it dwelt richly in her, as the, as the New Testament describes. Um, if the gospel of John was written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and by believing we may have eternal life, uh, even though it doesn't maybe explicitly say the purpose of the Psalms, they were written by so many various authors, of course David the most, but you could say that the Psalms were written so that in our believing we might sing. And, and here's a story, I think, a, a quick illustration of how I think the Psalms work for us. Uh, every once in a while, my father-in-law will allow me to drive his red uh, Ford F-150. And uh, there's one genre of music that I listen to when I drive his truck. One. It's country music. I don't like country, I never choose to listen to it myself, but it tends to be on the radio when I turn the car on, and it just fits. It just fits the occasion, it fits the circumstance, and, and country music, that genre, it, did, it fits. The, the Psalms tune our hearts in rhythm with our Lord's heart. If our hearts are tuned in a way that we need help expressing, the Psalms give us language to express when we may not have it. If we are always chipper and peppy, maybe overly confident, maybe to the point of arrogance, well, the Psalms will humble you. They will make you maybe more sad, but, but at least that'll be reality. It requires faith to be sad about sad things. But if you are always sad, somber, maybe a little bit of a Debbie Downer, then the Psalms may pick you up. The Psalms may move you in a pleasant way requires faith to rejoice and hope. Uh, but don't just hear it from me. I want to journey through just a few uh, quotes from saints in the past of what they've said about the Psalms. This is what John Calvin said. <clears throat> Not without reason, it is my custom to call this book, the Psalms, an anatomy of all the parts of the soul, since there is no emotion anyone will experience whose image is not reflected in this mirror. He says all emotions are are recorded in the Psalms. Every human emotion, that means you will not find an emotion that you journey through in life that's not in the Psalms, properly expressed as prayers. This is what Martin Luther said about the Psalms. The Psalms are a little Bible, wherein everything contained in the entire Bible is beautifully and briefly comprehended. Saint Athanasius said it's an epitome of all the scriptures. Saint Basile, a compendium of all theology. Matthew Henry, a summary of both testaments. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I was once corrected by a Lutheran pastor that you do not say Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You say Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He said it's the prayer book of Jesus. I personally admire the Psalms and I try to read through them uh, one Psalm every day, which, which means you would journey through if you did that twice in one year. Psalm 119 might take you a couple weeks. Um, 
Not just me, the first book in the American colonies to be printed was the Psalms. Here's what the inspired writers teach us about the Psalms. Colossians 3.16, this is Paul speaking. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Ephesians 5.19, very similar. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Now, I, wanna wade, I don't want to wade into a heated debate between our uh, fellow Presbyterian brothers and sisters in a different denomination who believe that we should only exclusively sing the Psalter. I'm not going to do that. But this is definitely uh, the Apostle Paul using a figure of speech that is very common in the scripture. It's called synonymy. I believe I'm saying that right. Ryan, you can correct me later. If I'm not, then that word comes from two Greek root words, which mean with name, and it, it would be the quality of expressing the same meaning by different words. Here are some examples. Genesis 26, verse five, commandments, statutes, and laws. Same concept, same, same general thing, different emphasis, different words. Iniquity, transgression, and sin. Those are said together in Exodus 34, seven. Statutes, judgments, and laws, Leviticus. Acts 2, 22, miracles, wonders, and signs. 1 Timothy 2, 1, supplications, prayers, and intercession, all describing uh, different emphasis about prayer. And here we see Paul doing that with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. He, here's another way to describe this. If I say pastor, elder, shepherd, I'm talking about boomer, all right? All different ways of describing the office of pastor with different emphasis on how it functions. If, but if I say runner-up, loser, or has-been, you know I'm talking about the Missouri Tigers. It's for you, Bill. And here in Ephesians, Paul has already done this many times. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion. He says uh, in Ephesians 2, uh, the time has passed that you followed the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. What commentators say is that these three words are, are describing the 150 chapters of the Psalter. We read that with modern ears and we might be tempted to think that hymns are just things that we sing on Sunday morning, Martin Luther, you know, what he wrote, Mighty Fortress. But to the first century readers, it was no doubt that because if you read the Psalter, in the original Septuagint, you will see above the chapters the superscriptions that we'll read, and some will say psalms, some will say hymns, and some will say spiritual songs. And matter of fact, there's a psalm that actually has all three. So when, when the Apostle Paul is saying in this in Ephesians and Colossians, no, I'm not made, making the argument that we should just sing the Psalter, but he is saying, you need to know the psalms. You need to live Bathe, drink, saturate your mind and heart, steep your life in the Psalms. And we should use the Psalms as a sort of grid to view our modern contemporary worship songs. Are they 99% laments? Maybe there's some place, I don't know where this would be, maybe there's some place in which all they sing contemporary songs are lament. I, I don't know if we could find that. I know that's not here. I think if we surveyed our general you know, songs that we use in contemporary, if you turn on K-Love, I don't know what you guys listen to. I listen to Spotify, you know. Um, some of us, you would probably hear a lot of jubilant, celebratory songs. And, and of course, that exists in, in the Psalms. But the majority of the Psalms, I mean, there's a, there's a bunch of different genres, right? And one of the, the main genre is lament. Aside from, you know, Thanksgiving psalms, royal psalms, messianic psalms, psalms of thanksgiving, all penitential psalms, psalms of remorse, psalms of contrition. Um, what am I missing? There's other genres, uh, imprecatory psalms, calling down curses upon our enemies. Those are in the psalms. But more than half of the Psalter are made up of either individual or communal laments. That is a vast majority. If you surveyed contemporary modern worship music, do you think 
The majority of our songs are laments. I don't think they are. There's a great book um, written by some scholars, um, some theologians at a university, a seminary in Australia, and they they all co-authored this book. It came out in 2017. I haven't read the whole thing. I want to. It's called Finding Lost Words, The Church's Right to Lament. And they trace back through the history of the church, and they begin to make an argument that the Psalms have, have, have been really dear to the life of the church and have been repetitively rehearsed so that we don't avoid or, or pick and choose based on our circumstances, but that we truly let our hearts. And, and then they go and they, they, they make the argument later in the book that for some reason, and they have their reasons, and I haven't gotten into it yet, but of why we, we've left that practice of really saturating. Anyways, I have to read this part in the, of the book. The lament psalms were not always out of vogue. They were used regularly in church services in the Western church in the period up to and including the Reformation of the 16th century. In the early church period, references to the use of lament psalms in church services are difficult to find. Nevertheless, there is some helpful suggestive evidence. Justin Martyr in AD 150 in his first apology says that the Old Testament was regularly read in churches. This nonetheless included the Psalter. Tertullian The early church father also makes reference to psalms being chanted in Christian gatherings. The early church fathers, Augustine or Jerome, Gregory of Nyssa, and Origen used the lament psalms in their lives, study, and ministry. Augustine provides a helpful model of this. He saw lament as dwelling on present sufferings and eschatological hope concurrently. Lament for the things of the present. Sing of what is to come in the future. Pray about what already is. Sing about what you hope for is what he said. He says this, lament can be a a verb and a a, a noun, but he says this as an action-packed verb, action-packed, right? Lament, do it, lament. Augustine preached and wrote on the lament psalms extensively. His collected sermons on the psalms And in it, Augustine entices believers to the Christian practice of lament. His exegesis of the Psalms repeatedly insisted that his congregation use the Psalms as their own words. This is what he says, if the Psalm prays, you pray. If it groans, you groan. Augustine also used the lament Psalms personally. In his autobiography, Confessions, he wrote of being deeply affected and crying when reading them. As he lay dying, Augustine surrounded himself with penitential psalms written out on large sheets of paper hanging on the walls, and he would read them crying constantly and deeply. In the Middle Ages, there is clear evidence, largely because during uh, this period, the patterns of corporate worship were better documented. Of the lament psalms in use, including instructions on reading, singing, and praying through the entire Psalter on a scheduled rotational basis. I think we could at least do that in our own private devotions. Read one psalm a day. Um, open your word, open your Bible. We're gonna read Psalm 88. <clears throat> the psalm is entitled, I cry out day and night before you. It says a song, Psalm of the sons of Korah, specifically of Heman. That word there that I'm not gonna try to say, it means to basically sing in a sad manner. This is not a New Year's rah-rah sermon, if you came expecting that. It's more of a somber, sobering one. Um, <clears throat> verse 1, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my, let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. 
Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terror. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. And the people said, the grass withers and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So like I said, Psalms of Lament take up the majority of the Psalter. This is a song of lament. But what is a lament? Uh, I believe uh, Mark Vrogop, I might not be saying his name correctly, uh, defines lament in his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, which he wrote after they lost their child at around eight months. He describes lament as a prayer of pain that leads to trust. Lament is the wailing of the heart before a God who hears, who listens, and who responds to our cries. Todd Billings, professor at Western Seminary who was diagnosed with an incurable form of cancer, wrote this about lament. It is precisely out of trust that God is sovereign that the psalmist repeatedly brings laments and petitions to the Lord. Thus the psalms of lament are not like the grumbling of the Israelites in the wilderness who displayed a lack of faith in God's promises. But because of their faith in God's sovereignty, the psalmists have high expectations of God. And because they take God's promises seriously, they lament and protest when it appears and seems that God may not be keeping his promises. God is sovereign and God is good. Thus, God is to be trusted in prayer. He goes on to say, if the psalmist had already decided the verdict that God is indeed not faithful, they would not continue to offer their complaints. That would be a losing battle. He doesn't care. He's not listening. He's unfaithful. Why cry to him? Lament stands in the gap between pain and promise, between the already and the not yet. Um, again, Pastor Vrogop, he says this, that these are common characteristics, and if you like, if you're one of those that likes the figure of speech of alliteration and sermons, this one's for you. There's four elements that he says are typically in a lament. You might take note of this. He says the author directs a complaint to God, as in Psalm 3, O Lord, how many are my foes? And then the author will describe, so direct and describe their suffering. My tears have been my food day and night, as Psalm 42 says. He's describing vividly with you know, maybe poetic imagination. It helps to give analogies to our sufferings at times. Words, it takes words, uh, it takes our language to, to our limits, right? Suffering does. And the Psalms give us those, those words at times, those analogies. Then it says, third, that the author then depends on God to the, come to the aid of his people. Like in Psalm 44, awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord, rouse yourself. Fourth, it says that then the author will dwell upon God's faithfulness and goodness. As in Psalm 13, which, you know, how long, O Lord, that, that psalm, that deep wail of lament. But at the end, right, there's this note of hope. It says, but I've trusted in your steadfast love at the end of Psalm 13. So there's a note of hope, explicit. I would argue that Psalm 88, just like these, possess the first three. But I'd argue that it lacks the fourth. And it is what makes this psalm an exceptionally fitting psalm for those who have 
pled the promises of God, dwelt on his character, done the four spiritual laws, led themselves to the Lord for the hundredth time, and still might feel utterly abandoned by God, desolate and in a dark place. They might not arrive at strong hope after prayer, always. We don't always come away from prayer with our faces shining like Moses from the mountaintop. Sometimes, as in Psalm 77, when we think about God, it makes our heart want to faint. The only other psalm in scripture that ends without any explicit note of confidence is Psalm 39, which is quite almost opposite to the plea in Psalm 88. The last words of Psalm 39 are literally, Lord, please, please look away from me so that I can enjoy a moment of life again. That's how Psalm 39 ends. But this is almost the opposite. Lord, please look at me. Please shine your face. Why are you not looking at me? Why is your face far from me? And it ends with basically a plea to God saying, God, the darkness is a better friend to, you, to me than you. Um, Psalm 88 proves to us that God's word is real. It's not trying to sell us something. And the princess bride, um, Wesley says to the princess bride, Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is trying to sell you something. The Bible's not trying to sell you something. It's just trying to sober you, wake you up to reality so that it can build hope of eternal life in you. You don't learn to hope if you think that now in the here is life eternal, right? We're still waiting. We're still on a pilgrimage. In the Psalms, if we steep ourselves in it, we will, we will know that. We will be okay to be on a pilgrimage. But I, I mean, I just, I really want to know how the prosperity gospel preachers, um, I really want to know how they deal with a psalm like Psalm 88, you know? <laughs> how do they sell that? in their pyramid schemes, right? How do they get people to think that if life here is gonna be their best life, as Joel Osteen likes to say, right? Which is just wicked stuff, nonsense. It's not true. And they sell this stuff to people and they get wealthy and rich off of it. How do they deal with this part of the scripture, right? I, I mean, I, I just happened to be on Twitter the other day and um, uh, I happened to see a clip come up on the, Timeline of um, a, a famous prosperity gospel preacher. And his name is Kenneth Copeland. He scares me. And uh, <laughs> he had the whole congregation the other day during service put their hands on their heads. And he said, in the name of Jesus, I cast out the bald spots. You know? And he says, he had everybody repeat, put, put your hands on your head and, and say, hair grow. And the whole congregation put their hands on their head and was saying, hair grow. I mean, that idea of faith is like waving a magic wand to get whatever we want. This is not the way the Bible defines faith. And, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray for everything. I think we can ask God that, you know. But the same trust that God can deliver us from, for instance, the coronavirus the same faith also allows us to trust in him when he doesn't. But if faith is just a wave of a magic wand and getting whatever you wish, you're doomed, you're doomed to, to fail in this life when you don't get that, when you get hardship and suffering, which is what Christ promised. Um, yeah, I, I just, <clears throat> I might try that next time I see Boomer, just lay hands on his head. Guys, it's all right. He's not here. He's not going to hear that. <laughs> Wait, you mean to tell me this is being recorded, Tyler? He's, he's, he might have heard that. It's been a good run. That, that was Evan's first sermon. That was Evan's last sermon. Um, imagine this for, for a uh, post-conversion pep talk. When the Thessalonians had become Christians, it says in, in the first um, book of Thessalonians, you know, sometimes when, in, in the ministry of Young Life, when, 
when we have people cross the line of faith, we, we give them a pep talk that, that morning after the cross talk, and many of them accept Christ, and you know, we tell them what the life of faith is gonna be like, and, and we, we oftentimes, um, you know, we have a temptation to, to kind of make it seem a little bit more rosy than it might be, right? Hey, don't get me wrong, we tell them they're gonna suffer, but it's almost like sometimes I feel like a, a, a side note. Oh, by the way, you might suffer, you know. That's not what Paul said. It says this. I, I love this. I love this. He says, I told you you were going to suffer. And then I told you again that you were going to suffer. Do you remember that I told you you were going to suffer? Like that, that's how it reads in 1 Thessalonians. And, and Jesus is like, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That's what I taught to. <laughs> you know, right? Didn't he? That we would share in his death, that we would share in his also, his resurrection, that we would share in the brokenness of this world. Here's the points of this psalm. I got four points for us. No alliteration, I apologize to you that love alliteration. First point, in a fallen world, we will experience fallen emotions, fallen feelings. Point number two, the darkness does not always lift, at least not when we might want it to. Number three, these experiences are no indication that you necessarily lack true faith. Fourth, the one I think that comes with practical application in our lives is that persistence in prayer awakens the potential for great hope and full assurance. In the dark and in the light, in the day and in the night, perseverance in prayer can awaken great hope and great assurance. Point number one, in a fallen world, we will experience fallen emotions. Uh, I want to highlight this with the story. In 1932, the largest instrument was, uh, that ever was constructed uh, was constructed in the Atlantic City Boardwalk Hall. That place is so big, it can host football games, and they, it's so big they had a helicopter fly in it. It took three years to build it, six times louder than a train horn, and it was so loud that when they first played it, it broke ceiling tiles. Now, I don't know that much about music. Um, I can play one thing, that's Spotify. <laughs> I got that joke from Boomer. Thank you, Boomer. I use that a lot. Boomer's got a lot of good one-liners. It goes on to describe all the complexity of, of this. It's got 1,200 stop keys and 852 speaking registers and 35 melodic percussions and 46 non-melodic percussions. Maybe you guys, some of you guys are musical and maybe know what I'm talking about. It's complicated, that's all, right? It's a complex machine. And it sounds beautiful. I listened to it on YouTube. Um, however, as you can imagine, due to the incredible complexity of this instrument, it has broken many times. It got flooded, they tried to fix it, they, they made it worse, got flooded again. And so it's actually only fully functioned and been in tune, perfectly, 100% in tune, for two years, and it's a 100-year existence. And in the 90s, they finally decided that they, were gonna, they approved a revitalization plan for this organ, this giant organ, um, uh, pipe organ, I should say. It sounds like I'm describing a body part. That wouldn't be good. Pipe organ, okay? For just the small amount of $100 million. And this is a, this is a quote from uh, the lead organist who's working on the project. Uh, Brent Duddy, the 93-year-old organist who's working to restore it, this is what he says. I, I read this on the New Yorker. It is almost there, only 10 more years. And here's, here's the reason why I share that. Although we are wonderfully made, right? Psalm 39, 139. And we have capacities for joy that only heaven will bring. I mean, just think about it. Here's a haunting question for you. You get bored in this life. Have you ever thought, how will we not get bored in eternity? You know, forever, ever, 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 ever. Ever? How, will we get bored in eternity? And like, you won't. I, I don't know how that'll work, but you won't. You are infinitely designed 
You have a capacity that only eternity can fill, only God himself can fill. He created you with wonder, and intricately in the depths of the earth he formed your substance. But just like this pipe organ that was beautifully constructed, it is, it is hard to retune it. It's taking a long time. Our souls in this cursed, broken, damned world, they're complicated. And we don't enjoy maybe uh, what God had originally designed us to enjoy. We enjoy, or we don't enjoy, we get a lot of confusion at times, brokenness, perplexity, anxiety. Anxiety literally means just like disintegration, fragmentation, separation, depression. Psalm 88, like this pipe organ, is a testament um, to how broken, how turbulent the emotions of the soul can be and just how long it, it might take to tune our hearts. And it, it'll take till heaven to properly tune our hearts. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon <clears throat> has to say in his exposition of this lament psalm. The mind can descend far lower than the body for it, for in it there are bar- bottomless pits The flesh can bear only a certain number of wounds and no more, but the soul can bleed in 10,000 ways and die over and over again each hour. I told you this was not a rah-rah sermon. Psalm 88 is an invitation to those of us who are in darkness to know that God understands. Why else would this be in here? More than that, that God is the righteous co-sufferer. He is the good friend who doesn't only listen to your sorrows so that he can answer you or fix you or give you solutions. I mean, he can do that. But not before he joins you, leans in, and and even helps give you a language for your darkness. This is also an invitation to those of you who may read this psalm and go, I I don't know, I've never experienced that. Well, it's an invitation for you to consider that you might. And it's also an invitation for you to consider how to kindly minister to those who are in that type of storm. Husbands, let's be honest. Isn't this one of our main problems with with our spouse, with our wife? I mean, so many times Sammy begins to express some kind of difficulty, uh, hard thing, um, and I, I begin to hear it through my physical ears, but I begin really to think about a solution. And oftentimes when she's expressing some difficulty, my first word is it's probably not the best way sometimes to answer. But I say, but, but, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll fix it, we'll do this, we'll do that, we'll do this. And, and there's a time for that, right? There's a, but there, sometimes Sammy's like, can you just listen first? Can you just speak back to me so that you understand? I mean, I expect her to do that for me sometimes. A couple weeks ago, we had a uh, disagreement wasn't a bitter argument or anything. Um, and we were going back and forth. We were, had an exchange, and I felt unheard about something. She felt unheard about something. And in the midst of our conversation, I took it by faith. I, Jesus says that, uh, you know, his word says that when we are united, uh, we are one flesh. That means her problems are my problems, my problems are her problems, right? And I said, you know, Sammy, what if we just did this for fun? What if, ever, what if times we have a misunderstanding? Because there's so many times when we have a misunderstanding. I'm sorry I'm talking to married folks here, but I think this could apply to other relationships as well. There's so many times when we might have a misunderstanding, and honestly, I don't know who's right. There's never a clear offendee party or offended party. Sometimes there is, but sometimes it's just, I don't know who's right. Both are, right? We just want to be heard. Um, And so I said to her, I said, what if, you know, when we have like a disagreement, what if we argued for each other's side passionately? You know, what if we just got into it, you know? Like we imagined that I was you and you were me. And so I said, let's do it, let's do it, let's do it. So we're driving and in this exact situation that had caused us to, I began to passionately, which was really hard, it was really hard to do. We so naturally defend ourselves, right? It's just easy to do. It's hard to consider to argue for somebody else's case. And so I begin to do that the best I can. And then I said, okay, Sammy's just really silent. I'm like, okay, it's your turn, you know? She's like, no, you're right. I like this. I like this. I said, no, 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 that's not how this works. It's, now you have to argue my side. 
So, um, the reason I think that this one of the reasons that this psalm is in there is that it's saying that the Lord pleads our case better than we could. You are one flesh with Him. He has made you His own. He has joined Himself to you. He's made your battles His battle. Your laments His laments. His our pains His pains. In the Book of Acts, you know that uh, persecutor of the church, Saul, when he was on the way to hunt down more Christians on the road to Damascus, the Lord appeared to him, and, he, and what did he say to him? I mean, maybe some of you guys know this, maybe some of you don't, but Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What? Like, Jesus is chilling with the Father, at the right hand of the Father. What was he talking about? He so has enjoined himself to his church that we truly are his body, fullness of his body, that he has a, in our pains, he has a fellow feeling. And so Jesus can say, I'm suffering as you suffer. He's our co-sufferer. I'm, you're persecuting me, Paul. Um, <clears throat> and this psalm is a way for, I think, us to have language for our sorrows that God is giving us and asking us uh, to pray. <clears throat> There's one petition in this psalm, one. And it's just, Lord, will you hear my complaint? Point two is the darkness does not always lift. Believers can be in a state of darkness for a long time, long enough for, for words like, this too shall pass, everything will work out, it all happens for a reason, those types of quips, that just, they don't work out. Sometimes they do. The Barr brothers have a song in which they say the darkness has arms. Uh, they personify darkness. Sometimes it just latches on, it holds us. We can't get out of it. Simon and Garfunkel, for my older folk, my dad would like this quote. They sing, hello darkness, my old friend, I've come to talk to you again. Again, personifying darkness. But before them, Heman, the writer of the psalm, he personified darkness. And what he's saying is he's pleading with God. He's saying, God, it sure seems, I know this isn't true, but it sure seems like the darkness is being a more faithful friend than you. You just stand there. James Boyce, entitled Psalm 88, is the dark night of the soul. He describes this state of intense spiritual anguish in which the struggling, despairing believer feels he's abandoned by God. And here, a counterpart of John Owen is really helpful. He wrote a book, Thomas Goodwin, said, uh, and the title was Child of Light Walking in Darkness, based upon Isaiah, which talks about this experience. Um, that one who truly fears God and is obedient to him may be in a condition of darkness and have no light. And he may walk many days and years, or she, in that condition. Here's a story that gave me a lot of personal hope in a year uh, that I struggled years ago about my own assurance. John Owen, the great <clears throat> Westminster divine, the chaplain to Oliver Cromwell. He's written extensively. Um, he did an exposition of Psalm 130. Uh, um, <clears throat> he had a five-year struggle for personal assurance of salvation. That struggle was not resolved until the winter of, of 1642. I'm getting this from a biography about him by Joel Beakey. When Owen was helped by a preacher whose name we do not know, Owen's struggle had already intensified in 1637 when he left Oxford to become chaplain to Sir Robert Dormar of Ascot. Owen's early biographer described the chaplain's spiritual state during this period as follows. About this time, Owen was so exercised with many perplexing thoughts about his spiritual state, which joined with outward discouragements, threw him into a deep melancholy that continued in its extremity for a quarter of a year, during which time he avoided almost all manner of conversation and very hardly could be induced to speak a word. And when he did speak, it was hardly... Could be, uh, and when he did speak, sorry, he spoke with such disorder, it rendered him to be a spectacle to many people. People gawked at him in this suffering. Solid comfort did not come for Owen for five years when he suddenly heard a sermon in 1643 at, at a chapel. He came to listen to the famous Presbyterian minister, Edmund Calamy. Calamity was unexpectedly absent, and Owen was disappointed to see a stranger ascend the pulpit. Maybe some of you guys can relate. <laughs> the stranger who preached from Matthew 8 preached, Why are you so fearful? The words of Jesus. Why are you so fearful? You have little faith. 
Those words were enough for all the objections that Owen had raised against his own salvation, and there he found solid comfort. And we know that he was a masterful writer. Um, believers can be in darkness for a long time. The darkness does not always lift. Verse, or, or point three, these experiences are no indication that you do not have true faith, not necessarily. Charles Simeon, he said that those who experience these times are, are so tempted to think that it's proof that they aren't truly the Lord's when it should be seen as the opposite because the Lord disciplines those whom he loves like a good father. We know that from the book of Hebrews. Here again, I really think Charles Spurgeon is so helpful. And here's what he says. How low the spirits of good and brave men and women will sometimes sink. Under the influence of certain disorders, um, everything will wear a somber aspect. And the heart will dive into the profoundest deeps of misery. It is all well for those who are in robust health and full of spirits to usually blame those whose lives are sicklied over with the pale cast of melancholy. But the evil is as real as a gaping wound and all the more hard to bear because it lies so much in the region of the soul that to the inexperienced it appears to be a mere matter of fancy and diseased imagination. Poor Heman had felt as if God had put him away, smitten and laid, among, laid him among the corpses. As it says, Heman cries out, I feel like I'm in uh, a burial ground. He says earlier, I feel like the slain that lie among the grave. And so he says, Spurgeon, interpreting this to say that Heman felt that he had been smited by God, which was this terrible, terrible thing that could happen to a gracious heart to feel utterly forsaken of the Lord. And he goes on to say this, however, if faith were to speak, faith would remind this depressed soul that it would be better to fall into the hand of the Lord than into the hands of man. And moreover, she would tell him that the despondent heart that God never placed a Joseph in a pit without drawing him up again to fill a throne. That he never caused a horror of great darkness to fall upon Abraham without revealing his covenant to him. And never cast Jonah into the deeps without preparing him the means to land him safely on dry ground. And, and you could say, uh, Heman, though he was in this darkness, look at, him, look at him now, we're quoting him. Thousands of years later, he's known as one of the greatest authors. <clears throat> it's an unspeakable consolation Spurgeon says that the Lord Jesus knows this experience with the exception maybe of the corruption that's within it at times. He felt it all and more in the garden of Gethsemane where he sweated drops of blood sorrowful unto death. He no doubt cried out as the psalmist cried out. In his life, he prayed psalms of thanksgiving. He prayed, he, he said these psalms were written of me, the royal messianic psalm of Psalm 2. Hebrews chapter 2 says that that is totally Jesus, that the Father has said to the Son, you are God, and you will be enthroned upon the praises of Israel. Jesus, of course, sang the jubilant celebration psalms, but his life went towards the cliff and the abyss of singing the laments. And he sung them. <clears throat> there are reasons. Oh, finally, persistence in prayer awakens the potential for great hope. This is where I believe the sermon can, can give us a boost of hope. Persistence in the dark and prayer can lead to great hope and assurance. Here are the reasons to hope from this psalm. Most of the, the reasons are implied. It's implied. That one, here's a reason that it's hopeful, even though there's no explicit note of hope. It's a prayer. Notice that Heman in his darkness, notice where he turns and where he does not turn. He does not turn to people. He does not turn to express his laments to uh, the bottle, drinking. He does not turn to sex, relationships. He does not turn to other false gods, TV, entertainment. He expresses his grief to God. He turns to God in prayer. 
He perseveres in prayer as Jesus did, as Paul taught us to. Number two, he understands God's character. He cries out with the proper title. He says, God, you're the God of my salvation. I know that's true. I don't feel it right now. That's hope giving. He knows the character of God at least, even though he may not be seemingly enjoying the person, no experience of that character. He knows the truth. He knows that God is merciful. If he knows that God disciplines those he loves. If he didn't know this, he may have been tempted to, A, think that um, this was the work of somebody else and this was just all his fault. He might have beat himself up, made it worse. If he didn't know that God disciplines those he loves, he would be tempted again to think that this was somehow outside of the bounds of God's sovereign plan. But no, he knew that God disciplines those whom he loves. There's hope there. He sees that this affliction is by the hand of a sovereign God. And these are exactly the groanings of the heart that the Apostle Paul said we should expect. Romans 8, he says, uh, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan, we groan inwardly as we await the adoption as sons. As we await, we are in awaiting. We are not Advent was not before Christmas and now we're enjoying all the fullness of heaven here on earth. No, we are always in a state of Advent. Christ has come and he now will come again. We are, as um, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, um, because we are sojourners and exiles here, is what First Peter or Second Peter says. We are exiles here on earth. It is already but not yet, and lament helps us to be in that space. You need to learn to lament. This faith that is expressed here, far from being lacking of faith or far from being false faith, I really believe it is the exact faith that, the, that Jesus taught us in a parable in Luke 18, the parable of the persistent widow. Jesus tells them this parable to the effect that they should always pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. There was a widow in that city who kept coming to him, kept, kept, kept bothering him. Judge, give me justice against my adversary. For a while, this judge refused, but afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, because this widow keeps bothering me and annoying me, pestering me. I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by this annoyance. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? That's what Heman is saying. I cry to you day and night, O Lord. And will not God give justice to his elect? Will he delay long over them? It might seem like he is delaying long. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. But nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Persistence, persevering faith in the darkness is exactly what Jesus wants to find. It's the fruit of his own righteousness imputed to us. The faith that Jesus longs to find is this faith that Heman's expressing. It would seem from my studies that the early church understood this psalm to be Messianic. Matter of fact, St. Augustine's exposition on this psalm, it only, only attributes this to, to Christ. I mean, every single line of this psalm, he applies to Christ. Christ was in the pit uh, before uh, his day of crucifixion. That's where they put those prisoners. They put them in a pit. He goes line by line to describe how Jesus fulfilled at almost every single line of this psalm. But I just want to take an aspect of this psalm, the darkness that Heman felt, and to um, say and to describe how Jesus fulfills this psalm for us. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, again, this is the last time I'm quoting Spurgeon, I promise. He says this, the wrath of God is the very hell of hell. And when it weighs upon the conscience, a man feels a torment, such as only that of damned spirits can exceed. 
And this is nonetheless at least what Heman was getting a taste of. But here's the thing. Remember when John and James, the sons of Zebedee, they, the mother of James and John, come to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, can my sons, John and James, can they sit at your right hand when you, know, you inherit the kingdom of Israel? Can they be with you in earthly glory? And what does Jesus say back? He says, can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Of course, the insinuated answer there is absolutely not. That Jesus would be baptized with the full cup of God's wrath and anger. That Isaiah describes it as the will of the Father was to crush the Son, to lay upon him our sin. And surely Jesus was acquainted and knew grief well. He was the man of sorrows. That was who he was. He came and he willingly chose to take upon our darkness, our sin. Though it might seem apparent for us in this life. And though Jesus, Jesus promised we would not drink a full cup, he didn't necessarily promise that we wouldn't get a taste or a drop, right? Or at least seem at times. But it was only Christ who was going to drink the full cup of the Father's wrath and truly face all of God's displeasure And the back of the Father is what Jesus saw on the cross. He saw nothing but darkness. It truly was. He was truly in the grave. He truly suffered infinitely the wrath of God. uh, And that's nothing our finite minds can can fathom. Many people think it is unjust to think of hell as an infinite place of punishment since it only seems that Jesus suffered for three days. But that is something our human minds cannot think of that Somehow, Jesus experienced the infinite amount of God's wrath in three days. He experienced the full cup of God's wrath. It says in Luke 23, 44, it was now about the sixth hour, noon, darkness over the land until the ninth hour. Full darkness, Jesus felt. He completely gave himself into the hands of the Father. And you have to ask yourself if that's true, if he truly, truly did suffer the entire wrath, um, though we might struggle with assurance, though we might at times uh, struggle with these things, you have to th- realize that if Jesus took the full curse of God's wrath, in those moments, there wasn't even a chance for any inkling of assurance. That is not to attribute any sin to Jesus. He had perfect faith, but he... He truly had all of our sin imputed to him, which means that he he bore the curse for our sin. And that curse came with the result of our lack of faith, which was complete, utter darkness. He spoke very confidently in his life. I'm going to die just like that building was raised back up. I'm going to die and I'm going to raise myself up. He spoke very confidently at times. And, And he was. I mean, he was. But in the Father's, in that hour, he put himself in God's hands. The Father raised the Son. <clears throat> Matthew 27, 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? <clears throat> if you don't know Christ, then this psalm is, is truly bitter for you. It means you are alone in your suffering. It means you are in a far worse place than this psalmist. The hopelessness experienced by this psalmist was only apparent and temporary. But those who die without repenting of their sin will know true hopelessness. One of the descriptions of hell is a place of utter darkness and utter darkness. No light. And that which is real and eternal, hell has no light. If you do not know Christ, then let your sufferings show you your need for a Savior. If you are already a Christian, then let your suffering remind you that um, eternal life is such a gift of God's grace that he does not owe it to us. Um, Any enjoyment of it in this life is such a gift of his grace. Let that thought drive you to share the liberating news of the gospel with others that they might be saved from their never-ending hopelessness. Um, Let me pray for us. Father, these were sobering words, but 
um, sometimes sobering words can be the grounds of, of uh, new life, and as the Psalms teach us in Psalm 30, though we might weep and tarry for a night, um, rejoice, rejoicing will come in the morning. Though we sow in tears, we might reap in loud shouts of gladness. And we know, Lord, um, Jesus, you perfectly did that. Um, you were put in the ground. And one day, Lord, with a loud shout, you will raise us up. May we live for that loud shout. And in the darkness, may we be okay to shout shouts of pain to you. Because we can, because we know one day you will shout. And, and those who belong to you, we will, we will rise out of the grave never, ever, ever to have any darkness ever again. For you will be with us, and Revelation describes you as the sun, as the light that will dwell with us permanently. And there will be no darkness. But God, in the meantime, help us lament either for ourselves, for others, um, and grow our faith in you, Lord. Thank you that you know what it's like to suffer, to be with us in our suffering, Jesus. It's in your name we pray, amen.